Hello and welcome to Against the Wall. My name is Jason Walls and thank you very much for joining me for this first ever episode. Now today we'll be talking about a range of things relating to business and the wider economic world, including stocks, the currency markets, global economic headlines, and then finishing off by taking a look at the dairy sector. But first, let's have a look at the markets. Well, nobody would argue it's been a good start to the year for Apple. I mean, the tech company, which of course is famous for making the iPhone, the iPad, the iWhatever, it broke its 151st consecutive quarter of uninterrupted sales growth last month. Now, let me repeat that. That is 51 quarters. That's not months, that's quarters. And so that works out to be roughly 13 years of sales growth, uninterrupted, quarter after quarter growth. So it's huge. So of course, when the announcement came that their revenue had fallen, there was huge impact on the market and we've seen their stocks plummet in the first half of this year last month especially and of course this prompted many people to start speculating over the burst of the apple bubble which some people were saying were premature i don't know it was very interesting comments to make well this week apple actually received some quite good news and that comes in the form of world famous investor warren buffett i'm sure everybody knows who he is he's arguably the most famous investor of all time now the revelation came out that he had actually taken a bite of the apple and he disclosed on monday that berkshire hathaway which is a company that he owns and chairs has made an investment in apple earlier this year so just a billion dollars so 9.8 million shares so that works out to be roughly about 93 dollars per share so this had huge impacts on apple stocks and it actually boosted the market value by 18 billion dollars now the interesting part about this story is buffett himself has never really been a tech geek In fact, he's always kind of shied away from different tech stocks. And in fact, four years ago, he actually went as far as specifically ruling out Apple as an investment option. So this really begs the question, I mean, what is Buffett doing in Apple? I mean, why would he invest in this specific time? Of course, it comes from his company, which of course, it can be argued that it's divorced from his actual views itself. But the question has to be asked, does he smell a bargain? What's going on here? Anyway, from one tech stock to another, let's take a look at Twitter. And that had some interesting news this week. For those out there that have read the news, Twitter has announced that pictures and photos will no longer be counted in its 140 characters when it comes to doing a tweet. So that's great news for all the Twitter audience out there, the people that tweet from time to time. Obviously, it can be quite hard when you're looking to insert that photo to have the word count in there as well. However, the interesting thing about this, I find, is Twitter's stocks were up 1.5% after the announcement. Weird, I know. Maybe investors saw that this was a good thing. Well, they probably did if stocks were up. So it's going to be an interesting one to watch. Taking a look at the New Zealand stock market and chief executive of the NZX, Tim Bennett, seemed quite upbeat about New Zealand's market this week. He said that the S&P NZX 50 was heading for another record high. Now, of course, this is good news. He said investors have put worries about China behind them. As you'll know, it was a rocky start to the year for stock markets all over the world, and the NZX was indeed no exception. Now, he was particularly upbeat about initial public offerings, which are IPOs. He was saying that there seems to be more interest in companies listing on the New Zealand Stock Exchange this year. Now, looking at companies that have already listed, of course, Teagle was the big one, and there was a lot of hype around that. But Mr. Bennett kind of stopped short of saying that it would be a better year for IPOs than the glory years of 2013 and 14, which saw a lot of new companies jump on to the S&P and ZX50. However, he did suggest that 2016 was going to be a better year for IPOs than 2015, and you'll know that 2015 there were very few IPOs at all. 
Let's take a look at the currency markets now, and CMC Markets trader Sheldon Slabbit joins myself and Andrew Patterson. So, Sheldon, what do you think is happening with the U.S. Federal Reserve fund rates? Do you think they're going to hike in June? You know, never say never, but I think that ship has sailed for them. I think I mentioned previously I don't believe that the data is there to support it. We've had some bips, you know, uh, uh, little glimpses of hope in terms of retail spending and so forth, but it, it keeps on uh, being revised, and I, I don't think the data is just uh, is there at this stage for them. Also, the bond markets, if you look at how the bond markets are pricing, Fed funds rate going forward, the shorter and, and longer end of the curve, bond markets aren't believing the Fed will, will hike anytime soon. Now, I know that there'll be some economists that disagree with you, because retail sales actually came out a lot it's better what, than it's expected. What, it's what makes a market. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But retail sales <laughs> jumped 1.3%, and that was ahead of expectations of 0.8%. So you don't think that's going to be enough? to maybe prompt the Fed to think, actually, we can hike these stubborn rates. And in addition, I mean, the job yeah, the yeah. jobs data hasn't been too bad either. Again, look, uh, you scratch the surface of the data itself. It lacks a lot of substance. The jobs data is something I'll, I'll field on another day. But the, the retail sales, look, here's one thing. L- look, at, look at the performances of the Macy's, the Sears, Walmarts, all those guys. It's the, the, these guys are closing down shops, uh, Walmart, excluding Walmart. But you know Macy's, J.C. Penney, these guys are, are absolutely closing shops, and that is not to me a, a, a physical sign of, of a healthy consumer. And if you want the full-length version of that interview, head on to www.nbr.co.nz and search for Currency Talk to find the full interview. Well, Andrew Patterson's back, and now we're talking about the biggest macroeconomic stories throughout the week. Jason, more bad economic news out of Europe this week. More bad news, and it seems every time we talk about Europe, we have the same sort of introduction, isn't it? More bad news out of Europe. Now we're taking aim at the UK, and we're looking at their inflation, which has edged down slightly in April, and that came off previously year highs on the month before. Now what this is showing is that there is just this general lack of inflation still prevailing around the developed world. And I was thinking beforehand, Andrew, I mean, I can't think of a single developed country. Can you? I can't. I know. It, it's funny you should mention it because it struck me recently that, you know, really there isn't anybody dealing with it. In fact, there's probably one or two very extreme cases of economies, but certainly nothing that you, you consider as a mainstream economy with an inflation problem right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have countries such as Venezuela and some other developing countries that have this the opposite problem is mm. where they have all the inflation. But if, this week, the Bank of England did actually come out and say that they expect inflation to increase in the second half of this year. But it seems to be almost a little too late here because it's really starting to have more of a bearing on interest rates. And of course, the Bank of England, just like the Bank of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, the Reserve Bank of Australia, and of course the Fed. It's an inflation-targeting Reserve Bank. So when it sees inflation trailing along the ground like this, it's a huge problem, and it's really going to have to do something to adjust that. But of course, cutting rates really doesn't, in this day and age, unfortunately have the desired effect that it used to in the past. In fact, I sat down with um, former governor of the Reserve Bank this week, Alan Bollard, and we actually had a, a chat about this, and he was quite candid in the fact that basically the world now is a different place when he was a central banker. And he said, actually, um, word for word, that it was an easier place. And I'm quoting right now, he said, we had a very hard time against deep-rooted inflationary pressures, but at least there was a clear, there was some clarity about what you did, what tools were used, and what objectives, and the calibrations you look like. And he said that that's all gotten quite complex right now, because you look at economies such as Japan, where of course, rates are going negative, and it's not, it's, it's not doing anything to inflation. 
Now, staying in Britain, the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, got quite defensive this week when asked about Brexit. Yes, because people have this idea that he overstepped with his comments that he made. And of course, last week we talked about it. The fact that he said that Britain leaving the EU, the Brexit as it's called, would impact slower growth, it would have higher inflation, and could even end up leading to a recession in the UK. And people criticized him about this and said that he's being biased in the fact that he shouldn't really be taking a stance on some of this. But I'm with him on this because it's his job as a, as a central banker and the governor of one of the biggest economies in the world to outlie these sort of risks. And of course, the Brexit is one of the probably the biggest economic issue of Britain this year, even maybe even this half decade. And he needs to be taking a stance on this. And I don't think it's biased at all for him to actually put himself on one side of the fence like this. I'm, what do you think? Well, yeah, I think it's it's probably it's an interesting debate because there is always this view, isn't it, that the central bankers should remain agnostic from these sorts of debates. But given the pivotal role that he has, and given this is a very unique one-off debate, it probably is appropriate that he comments. So, yep, I'm probably with you on that. Now, US Fed Chairwoman Janet Yellen has weighed into the debate on negative interest rates. Were you surprised? It's sort of a yes and no here, because what happened was she sent a letter to Congressman Brad Sherman and said that negative rates weren't out of the question, which is something a little bit concerning. I mean, she did kind of caveat that by saying there would have to be a wide range of issues before employing such an extreme measurement. But the fact that she's talking about it is really a bit worrying because we were talking about inflation and interest rates at the beginning and the fact that basically no one is looking to increase interest rates right now, apart from the US, who have a tightening bias. And for her to be talking about negative interest rates is quite alarming. But on the other hand, like you can't really escape it in this day and age, can you? I mean, you look at Japan and parts of Europe who are all going into negative interest rates. I mean, unless we're going to see some more fiscal stimulation from the government, which a lot of them aren't even playing ball with because it's so politically risky, we're going to have to see this fix-it attitude from central banks around the world. And this kind of tool, negative interest rates, is just something else in their war chest. I was interested to hear the views this week of Professor Neil Ferguson, of course, well-known economic historian and economist. And he talked about the fact that Japan was probably stuck in this rut where it's been, as we all know, for you know two and a half decades, that it's probably permanently stuck there. But he didn't feel that was the scenario for the rest of the economy. That, In fact, he was interesting in his perspective that he believed that this year is the inflection point. This is the bottom of the cycle. And interesting. We, and we start to move up from here based on a whole bunch of history and models that he was able to include in his presentation. So, yeah, interesting to see those perspectives around. But interesting, too, also in this world of uh, negative interest rates, because I talked to him in the interview that I did with him on this, is that, you know, how low can we go? I mean, what is the bottom of the negative interest rate cycle? Yeah, well, we can keep picking it, but I'm sure we'll be wrong. That's the thing. (laughs) I think it's true. Okay, well, let's shift our attention to the milk price and dairy prices. Now, that's something that comes up quite a lot in the media. And being an agriculture reporter myself, it's something that I write about quite often. Every two weeks, there is an event called the Global Dairy Trade. Now, you've probably heard of that. And basically what it is, is it's a big auction where they sell off all sorts of different dairy products from 
cheese to butter to lactose. There's a lot of things in there. And arguably, the most important item which is auctioned off is whole milk powder. And that's been sold by the ton. Now, currently of this week, that's sitting at just over $2,200 a ton. And that was up 3% this week. Now, the important thing about the price of whole milk powder is it helps Fonterra to set its milk price. Now, Fonterra's milk price is something that's very, very well known. And there's no doubt you probably would have heard about it. And milk prices are low right now. Fonterra's current forecast milk price payout is $3.90 per kilogram of milk solids. And that's looking to be confirmed later this month at around about that $3.90 mark. Then Fonterra will forecast a new one. Now, that's expected to be around about $4.50 to $4.80, depending on who you ask. Now, it sounds pretty good, that much of a price rise. However, to put it in context, in 2014, that price was closer to $8 per kilogram of milk solids. So those were good times for farmers. And when you look at it now, contrasting it to that $3.90 mark, it's way off. In fact, the average break-even price for a farmer is $5.25. So we can see it's still lagging behind. So the question is really, why is it so low? And that's a question that I'm looking to address here today. Because when it comes down to it, the milk price is very similar to the price of oil. It's simple economics, supply and demand. We look at oil. There is too much supply and not enough demand for oil right now. And we can see it's the same sort of issue when it comes to dairy. Any high school economics student will know that when supply is high and demand is low, there is an imbalance. And of course, that puts pressure on prices and means prices are going to be low. It's the same concept behind why diamonds are so expensive. There's not very many of them and people want them. Therefore, the price is high. So although New Zealand is a big player in the world of dairy, the problems really do stem from overseas. Now, mainly the two culprits come from China and they come from Europe. And I'm going to start with China first. And it's really down to demand. Now, starting with China, now that's more of a demand side story. Now, we'll get to the whole issue around what's happening with the Chinese economy in a later episode, but today we're just going to be focusing on the fact that their GDP has slowed down, and inside China, fewer people are demanding milk and dairy products and a whole bunch of other things as well. You probably would have heard about a lot of countries around the world struggling because China's slowing down. So that's having an effect on the prices side as well, but it's not just China. As I mentioned before, oil and milk are quite linked in the fact that how their prices go. Now, because oil prices are so low, countries such as Venezuela, Nigeria, Russia, they're all struggling. And because they're struggling, their economy is struggling. And because their economy is struggling, people are getting poor and they can afford fewer and fewer things, which is having a downwards effect on the price of dairy because fewer people are demanding it as well. So on to the supply side. And really the main culprit on the supply side is Europe. About a year ago, the European Union removed milk quotas, which had been in place for about 30 years. Now, these quotas put a roof on how much each farmer could produce in Europe, and this limited the supply. So this is one of the reasons we had these massive $8 payouts back in the day, because the supply in Europe, which is a big producer, they've got the Netherlands and Ireland and places like that, who are big dairy producers as well, were essentially capped. So suddenly, there was a lot of milk on the market when the European Union removed these quotas. Since New Zealand exports 97% of the milk we produce, a good chunk of that was going to Asia. So when the Europeans took off these quotas, one of the reasons behind that was because they were looking to further compete with markets in Asia and in Africa as well. And since Asia was New Zealand's stomping ground, there were a few problems there. And that's another reason why these milk prices fell. Again, it's a supply and demand story. Now, the spanner in the works out of all of this is Russia. Now, after Western countries placed sanctions on Russia following its actions in Ukraine, I'm sure you'll remember those, Russia responded by banning many foreign imports. So that included dairy. 
scary. So again, this takes a lot of the demand out of the market. Now, it's important to note that New Zealand wasn't actually on the list of countries which are banned from exporting to Russia. However, the New Zealand government is still encouraging businesses not to do business with Russia as it says it would be a bad look. Now, the question is, how does all of this affect New Zealand? Now, as long as there's supply imbalance in the world, New Zealand will suffer. Dairy is New Zealand's second largest industry, of course, after tourism, which overtook dairy midway through last year. So when Fonterra changes its milk price, it adds or it can take away millions of dollars to the economy, having a huge effect. So the big question is, what happens next? Well, it's probably the biggest debate in the world of dairy at the moment, is when prices will rebound. Now, some say the end of this year, and Fonterra are in that camp. Fonterra's chief executive, Teo Sparings, thinks it'll rebound around about Christmas. However, there's a lot of people that think that that's completely ridiculous and it's going to be a lot longer. It really depends who you're talking to. But one thing is clear, as long as the supply and demand imbalance is persistent in the market, we're looking at lower milk prices for a long time. And the Treasury and government have actually both said independently that New Zealand will never see those $8 milk price payouts anymore. All right, well, just quickly before we go, let's take a look at what's happening next week. And of course, probably the big one is the budget. Now, although the government has really already told us all the good stuff that's going to be in there, there could be a few more nuggets that they're looking to release that will be of interest. There's a lot of U.S. data out as well. And of course, that's going to have implications on what the Fed are going to do with interest rates. But that's all from this week. Well, thank you very much for listening to the first edition of Against the Wall. Make sure you follow me on SoundCloud and you can download me on iTunes as well. And follow me on Twitter. I'm Jason Wall. 92. Well, thank you very much for joining. This has been Against the Wall with Jason Walls.